0: Welcome to Pushback, I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Ben Aris. He is the founder and editor of BNE IntelliNews, that's bne.eu, long time reporter covering Russia. Ben, thank you for joining me.
1: Pleasure, pleasure to be here.
0: Russia has accused the US of waging economic war against it. I'm wondering if we could start out by asking you to talk about the measures that the US has unveiled against Russia the sanctions, the banning of energy imports, the uh, seizing of its uh, foreign reserves, and what impact do you think this will have on Russia and the global economy? So at the very
1: outset, uh, I think I should say that the Russia Watchers uh, are divided into two very different camps. And in the one camp, they um, see Putin trying to rebuild the Soviet Union, that he hates Ukraine or doesn't see it as a real country. It's just a region of Russia, which it was for many years and that uh, he hates democracy and that he sees Ukrainian democracy because it's a lot more democratic than Russia as a threat. And there's some truth to that, but um, I'm in the other camp which thinks this is all about NATO and that Putin, what he's doing to understand his actions, it's about getting a security deal because the NATO security infrastructure explicitly excludes Russia, it's not a member and therefore on the outside, it feels threatened by NATO, which has been advancing towards Russia's borders um, over the last whatever it is, 10, 15 years. And that Putin has decided that um, a clash with the West is inevitable, and that Ukraine's membership of NATO, despite the fact it hasn't been offered membership, nor is there any prospect of it joining, nevertheless, he believes its uh, membership is inevitable. And he believes it's inevitable that missiles, NATO missiles will be put on the Ukrainian border, and on the other side of that border is European Russia, where most of the big cities are 80% of the population, and the missile flight time is under five minutes to hit any of those cities, including Moscow, and he sees that as beyond the pale, not acceptable, in the same way that JFK saw missiles in Cuba as unacceptable, and he's prepared to go to war over it, and he has done, unlike JFK, who found a solution. So that's the background,
0: that's what we're but doing. To clarify one point, Ukraine was formally offered NATO membership or was given a pledge of membership, but that that offer was essentially put on the shelf after it was made in 2008. Is that a fair way to describe it?
1: Not quite. Um, there was a thing called the Budapest Memorandum where NATO at the pushing of the US um, but was blocked by, well, in, in Budapest in 2008, the, there was a discussion about this and the U.S. was pushing f- formally offer eventual membership and the, the Germans blocked it because they know that's very provocative to Russia. And so there's just this very vague statement that in the future, without any timelines or anything concrete, that it could be possible that both Ukraine and Georgia can join NATO, which of course the Russians are objecting to. But it, it's very vague and it's a memorandum, it's not a treaty. So there's nothing binding about it. So it's just saying, wouldn't it be nice if. Um, yeah, and so Putin has, has been going, he, I, in my reckoning, he, he's been preparing for this for 14 years. And he complained about it at a famous speech in Munich in 2007 and said like, we were promised Gorbachev in, even at the end of the Soviet era, was promised no nato expansion and we're going to hold you to those promises that were made then which are part of the historical record although it remains controversial and um he then started preparing and so um in 2012 he started modernizing the army crashed the economy as a result ended the prosperity but the army was modernized in 2014 he took crimea to understand that's all about this huge warm water naval port there so that was brought back into the fold couldn't be taken away and then um, they started building up the hard currency reserves and so he's built up this massive cash pile of 600 and whatever it is 43 billion dollars which is an insane amount of money for a country to have and at the same time paid down the debt so most countries in the world 100 percent gdp debt russia has 20. it's unheard of to have so little debt sold off all the T-bills, sold off all the dollar assets, and got ready for this. And so that brings us up today. What just happened? That the two rounds of diplomacy that were in January with the States and then in February with the French-led, both failed to get the security deal. And he keeps pushing, and then it pours. And then there's talks. And there was that was both in January and February. And um, when it failed the the February ones, the next day, rockets started flying in Donbass and hit a kindergarten. And now it's got progressively worse. And on 24th, they crossed the border. They invaded, full-fledged invasion. Um, And again, we've seen the same thing. We had like two weeks of, uh, or even 10 days of uh, invasion. But then the Russian side, again, went to Zelensky, the Ukrainian president and said, let's stop. Let's have talks. And we want the same things. We want you to recognize Crimea as Russian. We want you to recognize the autonomy of the Donbass region, make it a little country. And we want a security guarantee. We want you to promise you'll never join NATO. And those talks apparently failed today. That Zelensky said, we're happy to do neutrality because actually we concede NATO is not offering us membership and is not likely to. So the next best thing is to actually go back to neutrality. Ukraine was declared in the constitution a neutral country until the Maidan revolution in 2014 when it got changed to aspire to join NATO. And um, because these talks have collapsed, I'm very afraid now that we'll go to the next stage, the fourth stage. And that means the the full-scale invasions come in and everybody's been talking about how badly the war's going. Um, in so much as the russian troops haven't moved for a week and so they say it looks poorly planned and they haven't got enough food they haven't got enough fuel personally and again there's a lot of division on on this question personally i think it's because putin's been holding back that he put everybody over the border they control strip of border in the north east and the south um but then they paused again to have these talks and so the threats of massive destruction was there and i know the images coming out are very very uh, dramatic and Harki, for example, has got pretty smashed up, but you've seen it escalate and most of the attacks have been by rocket, very little, almost no tanks with infantry behind. The um, The Ukrainian Air Force still can has control or at least as is a, is a element in the sky. But then again, we haven't seen any of the really sophisticated SU-35 fighters, the T-109 bomber that can flatten things to pancake level. None of that's been used. And I, I fear that in the stage that's about to start, if they do decide those talks are dead, that we're gonna see all that stuff come in and Ukraine is going to get a real beating in the hope that they smash the army, they smash the cities. And that again, they'll go to Zelensky and say, right, talks again, but same demands. This time you've got to say yes, or we're just gonna keep going until there's nothing left. And it's that mentality on Putin's side that is so scary because he's it's extreme, he's going to extremes. Because another element of this is you have to understand that this can't go on, he doesn't want it to go on. That the Russian people and I'm, I have staff in Russia, I'm talking to them. My, my head of sales it was in tears and she's sending her kids, you know, overseas because there's no future for them anymore. But I didn't answer your question, which is the effect of sanctions. So, in response to all of that, have been the Western sanctions. And they have been um, a shock as well, in so much as the unity and decision, the, the commitments to hitting Russia really hard has been a surprise as well. And they were talking about a lot of different sanctions to do with, you know, against Putin personally in a list of 13 banks. And what they did is they came out and made it impossible for the entire Russian banking sector to use the dollar Um, And that's partly by taking out the international SWIFT money uh, money transfer system. And the second thing that came completely out of left field that hadn't been discussed at all was freezing the central bank's currency reserves overseas. Uh, That's half. So the West just seized $300 billion of Russian money, which it now can't use. And that's actually a bit of a game changer. Because with that $600 billion that they had, they could... Survive most sanctions. You know they have plenty of cash, but the combination of of taking, making it very difficult to use the dollar, and taking away half of Russia's yeah. money, means what they've got left is like I don't know, 100 billion in cash, and then another 130 in gold. But then gold is not—it's liquid, but it's not that liquid. You can't turn it into cash that quickly. And now there's another talk of more sanctions to sanction anybody who does a gold deal with Russia. So they might even freeze that other 130. So Russia is actually starting to look in a really bad place because um, without this money, there's already liquidity problems in the country with the banks. Everybody wants to take their dollars out and can't. The restrictions have already been put on. The ruble has collapsed, it's lost half its value. The economy was growing. It's probably going to contract by anywhere between five and 20% this year. Um, the, everyone's savings have been made worthless again. Um, we've seen this multiple times, but this is a really bad one. Um, and we might have a banking crisis. I mean,
0: the, the banks are starting to, to wobble. Is it legal to seize Russia's foreign reserves as the US sure. has done, Europe I, has done too? And do and, and you think ahead. Putin uh, planned for this contingency?
1: so legal um i actually just asked uh, exactly this question today um and apparently well there, there's no international treaty because it's very usual for instance you know central banks to put money in other central banks you need to make some sort of return the other banks use the liquidity they pay some interest on it um but there's no international treaty guaranteeing your reserves um, yeah. and as soon as the government puts through sanctions laws that gives it special powers so um, in that sense, it's legal in the country it's done, but um, the Russians have no recourse. Where do you go? Which court do you go to? Um, and, and if you went to the UK, for example, which is a favorite court, then the UK court will just point to the British laws allowing the Bank of England to, to grab that money. So um, it's a kind of, well, I don't know, put it this way, the, the Russians are calling it an act of economic war. And that's probably a good way to think about it, that it's been legal, but it's an attack on the country and they're not happy about it.
0: So what was your second question? Well, uh, do you think Putin planned for this? Uh, planned. As part of his- Yeah,
1: no. I mean, the thing with the European reserves, um, it seems to have caught the Kremlin completely unawares that they didn't see this coming uh, because they wouldn't have left so much money you know they're in the hands of the europeans they would have moved it to china or to i don't know one of their other friendly countries like serbia and put it in in those countries but again had they moved so much money 300 billion dollars then it would have been very obvious to everyone something was up um but they have been
0: so does that surprise you as, as a long-time observer of russia and the kremlin does it surprise you that they didn't Anticipate that, especially because they're known as being crafty and strategic and yeah, covering their bases. It does, it does surprise. Um, as I say, no one was expecting it. And, and
1: of, of all the sanction scenarios that we talked about, and we've been talking about sanction scenarios since 2014, when they annexed Crimea. I mean, this subject has been very heavily worked over. Seizing the central bank's reserves has never come up ever. It's never been mentioned. So completely came out of left field. And it seems to have been extremely effective in so much as the sanctions proof fortress or fiscal fortress that Putin built up has at a stroke of a pen been cut in half to a point where he still has plenty of money. And the 300 billion he's got left is, is enough to, to, to function. And it's, it's actually um, enough to undo a lot of the damage. But um, the comfort zone has gone completely and one of the repercussions is that they uh, again very dependent on the way they wouldn't have been to sell oil and gas as much as they can. And so the states just (coughs) excuse me, the states just introduced uh, an embargo on importing Russian oil, the states doesn't count for much Russian oil imports I mean it's a tiny part of of the the country's business, but. um, that kind of sanction, if it expands, is going to do real damage because it cuts Russia off from the ability to replenish those reserves and to get it back up to where it was. is going to take years. I mean, it spent 10 years building up this cash cushion it took a long time um, and they're not going to be able to do it overnight. So suddenly it's in a much more, um, what's the word, fragile position than it was before. Before it was in a fairly strong position. Now it's been made a lot more fragile and vulnerable.
0: You were in Russia in the 1990s when the U.S. helped impose this radical shock therapy that decimated the Russian economy. Life expectancy radically went down. Do you fear that Russia will could see a return to that level of deprivation?
1: No, I mean you. You. I, I arrived in the summer of uh, 93, 18 months after the um, the wall came down. A bit longer, and. you you can't imagine, the the economy had entirely collapsed, entirely, Uh, the shops were empty, there was one or two restaurants in all of Moscow and nothing worked, the shops didn't turn the lights on, they had one bulb over the counter where you paid so that the worker could see and the rest was dark and it was decimated, I mean, and today, Despite all of this, Russia has made enormous progress. And, and that's what's so tragic about it, because I know that, that Putin is demonized, but he brought stability and domestic investment, and, you know, mums and dads set up. If you go to Moscow restaurants, there's just like zillions of them and really good ones run by teams of young guys who have an interest in food and have been using local products to invent this sort of Asian fusion food. It's delicious. I mean, the eating scene in Moscow is amazing. So we're not going to go all the way back to the 90s because although the rubles collapsed the ruble in 1991 went to zero it was worth literally nothing and now it's lost half its value and if the fighting stops then it will recover but um, it's still going to have lost a lot of value and so in that sense you're going to see economic contraction 20 30 percent that russians who like to travel suddenly going abroad has become almost twice as expensive so much fewer people can do it you're going to see a middle class that had grown to about 20 25 percent of the population contract again to whatever it is 10 percent and depending on what business you're in um depending on how dollar dependent you are some businesses are like you know so you need machinery or then you import it from germany Um, but if you're doing i don't know retail then rubles are fine Um, But it's a a huge setback. And like I say, the biggest effect is the shock on the people, is the opportunity um, for prosperity, for growth, for long-term development has been set back because the the key to this is that although Russia's growth was underperforming, it was still growing. And my comparison with with Moscow Today in 1993, it's come all this way and it drops back. But um, the growth now the growth already before this crisis was less than global growth. And what that means in effect is stagnation, that you fall slowly further and further behind the rest of the world. And now the growth is going to be, after the contraction finishes, the potential before was only 2%, whereas you've got global growth around four. Now the potential growth is going to be, I don't know, we don't know what it's gonna be, but one, nothing, minus something which means that Russia is now going to fall even faster behind the rest of the world. So if you live there, if you're a Russian, like my colleagues have said, there's no future here because you're just gonna go more and more behind while everybody else gets further and further ahead of you. And that's, that's really tragic. I mean, my colleague is just telling our kids, like, you know, she's been teaching them English and she's, uh, you have to leave, you know, as soon as you finish university school, just like try and get a job somewhere else and you know, try and get a Schengen visa, whatever. It's, it's absolute tragedy. Putin's causing in two weeks this is happening from boom to no future. We've gone to that in two weeks. So it, it, this is why we're all in shock. It's, it's phenomenal. This is real historical stuff.
0: I'm trying to understand what his thinking is. Does he possibly think he has leverage given uh, Russian energy exports and also not just oil, but also other commodities that are vital for the global economy? Does he think that he has leverage there that could help dig Russia out of this?
1: Yes, he thinks he has leverage um, and he does because um, Russian commodities are deeply ingrained in the global system. When they tried to sanction Alec Deripaska, one of the oligarchs in 2018, who runs the big aluminium plant, they they made it illegal to do business with him. And the next day on the London's metals market, prices of aluminum were up 40%. And then it it was explained to the state treasury department, which runs the sanctions, that this is going to add 15 cents to the cost of every can of Coke in America. And they they backed off.
0: And also wipe out tens of thousands of jobs. So... The, the commodities, Putin
1: is threatening to limit the commodities, um, the exports, the oil, the gas, the metals, the yeah. grain, and Russia is a major supplier to the world of all of those commodities. If they ban the export of titanium, for example, the American aviation industry is in serious trouble because it won't be able to get enough titanium, which you have to have to build planes. If they ban grain exports, Russia is the third, it supplies a third of the world's grain. It's it's a huge exporter. So then that will send bread prices spiraling upwards. And the uh, food inflation has already got to the point where it was, which started the Arab Spring. So if you then double or treble bread prices on top of that, you're going to have political repercussions across the Middle East and, and, and lots of developing markets. And Albania yesterday had its first price protests, where people came out and were demonstrating because the cost of living has shut up because of this crisis in just the last few months. We didn't see more of that. So um, it remains to be seen exactly how he's going to use that weapon. But my working assumption now is that he is totally dead set on doing this, on getting his security deal to the point where he's willing to wreck Russia's economy and undo 20 years worth of work. So we can say he's fixated on this idea at any cost. And that suggests when he's thinking in such extreme terms, so it seems that he's going to do things like just stop exporting gas to Europe. And that will cause a massive energy crisis here because you cannot replace that gas. So there he's got Europe, you know, uh, he's got Europe in a position where uh, they can't do anything to protect themselves. And that's a big club to wield. And I think he's going to wield it, but we don't know I mean we have no details of exactly what he's going to do next but this is supposed to come in the next two weeks, but put it this way we've been shocked. Every time and every step, he's gone to an extreme and he's done something shocking. And I don't think that process is he's not going to roll over and and stop this just because he's not making any progress with the war in Ukraine he's going to keep going, and he's got more surprises in store. Um, and he's going to play these cards one by one progressively more damaging more shocking cards until um we concede until we we suffer enough pain that we want to cut our losses and actually at the end of the day because he has complete control of russia and the people are not in a position to stop him that russia can probably endure a lot more pain than the west and you know i live here in berlin it's very comfortable but if you start making it impossible to drive, if the lights go out in the winter because there's uh, power cuts, because there's no fuel, then that's the kind of pain uh, our politicians in the West will find very difficult to tolerate because they'll want to stop it then. And I think that's where he's headed. That's what he's calculated.
0: Well, on that front, what is the prospect for Germany? Uh, what, what are the likely consequences for Germany as a result of this crisis? Well, you at had, the moment, before the invasion, you know, Biden was trying very hard to get the German chancellor to commit to canceling the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. And even when they were standing together, the German chancellor wouldn't do it. But then, of course, immediately after the invasion, he did.
1: Yeah, no, the invasion changed everything. So, I mean, increasingly, um, there's a war mentality developing, and if Putin comes out with some really drastic. Um, counter sanctions, for example, cutting Europe off from its energy, then that rhetoric will go up. Um, and the politicians are going to have to sell it as a war. And increasingly the more we talk about war, you know, we go from economic war to, you know, normal war, regular. war. But I think the appetite. Um, in in the west to send soldiers to die in ukraine for ukraine's sake is negligible at the moment but um if you start you know wrecking businesses and um hyperinflation or superinflation in western europe then that might change but again taking on russia nuclear arms power i think nobody's willing to do that so one assumes that we would reach a point where a deal would be done and the economic damage is so far red- relatively modest in Europe, but the main problem is inflation. And f- inflation driven by rising food prices. I mean, wheat prices are already at all-time highs, record highs. And they are, if you take out Ukraine production and and Russia refuses to export to anybody in the West, then you're going to see extremes of that. And high inflation, double digit inflation, will wreck a lot of damage. It'll send a lot of companies bankrupt. Um, it undermines savings, uh, eats into people's wealth in, in a big way. Um, and that does long da- long-term damage. And then undoing that inflation uh, is also extremely difficult because you have to hike rates, and if you hike rates, then you kill economic activity. And so in general, we're headed in the direction of a global recession. And quite a nasty one, possibly. Again, it's up in the air. If it's stopped now, then that may not, probably won't happen. If it goes on another six months, if we go to this fourth stage, then we're looking at contraction, global contraction, which comes on the back of the pandemic shock and an oil price shock that's already been. And at the same time, oil prices in this crisis will go up to... Well, they've already gone up to like 140 bucks from 80, you know, six months ago, and they could go as high as like two, 300 bucks, which again, makes transport impossible. And I think you need yeah. 70 liters of oil to produce a thousand dollars worth of GDP goods. Um, and if you suddenly triple the cost of that, that oil, then you're going to completely derail the the global economy while everyone tries to readjust, and that a global recession of that severity would have a long term impact i 'm um, I'm not talking about maybe great depression, but it depends replacing all of those Russian inputs is going to be very, very difficult uh, and it will take huge investment and it will take several years I mean to wean Europe off Russian gas completely is going to take hundreds of billions of dollars and the plan they've got the soonest they think they can do it is in a decade and if we're left in this cold war situation where russia's then our permanent enemy but we're still having to buy this gas from it then you know it's going to take 10 years until we can wash our hands of russia here
0: in europe yeah can you comment on the fact that as i understand it even though russia and ukraine have been engaged in this Conflict over the last eight years in Donbas, with Russia backing the rebels, Ukraine attacking them. Russia's still been sending energy through Ukrainian pipelines to the rest of Europe. Does that continue, or is that over? Yeah.
1: Well, at the moment, it does. Yeah. Well, the 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 thing with Gazprom and Gazprom export in particular is Russia's been sending gas to the West since the seventies. So throughout the Cold War despite the fact that they were daggers the whole time uh, and ideologically they were mortal enemies, the gas deliveries have continued, you know, undisturbed. It's always been that, that the gas just flowed, because it's a major source of energy. I mean, 70% of Russia's, uh, it's not just energy for the West, but money for, for the Kremlin, hard currency. And, you know, any country needs hard currency to do international business. And so they were earning you know, billions of dollars from that. And Gazprom Exports always tried to take the line despite everything we were a reliable energy partner. And so, in the first week of the conflict, the exports of gas through Ukraine actually went up. Because there were orders. People ordered, they have a contract and they got delivered. And if you look at the map with the pipelines, I just looked at this um, this week where they are, where the occupying terror forces are, the pipelines, there's a couple of holes in the pipelines come past and they're in undisputed territory in government control. They're not being threatened. And all the storage tanks on that side of the country are also just outside where the occupation zones are. And so they're not messing with that gas business for the meantime, but that could change very radically. As I say, I'm actually believing at the moment that the next phase that could start now will be to take control of Ukraine's um, gas business because it's a weapon they can point at the West. It's a very powerful weapon. So, um, yeah, in the meantime, the gas business continues and uh, the Kremlin continues. I mean, the prices of gas have gone up tenfold. They're actually 16 fold what they were last spring now. Um, and ironically, Russia, as a result of this invasion, is making a huge amount of money from prices that have doubled or in in gas's case they've gone up 16 fold so it's making a huge amount of money out of all of this which i guess was a calculation that you know the the war will fund itself because you'll drive all the commodity prices up so high uh we'll make so much profit that you know will actually be a profitable enterprise extremely profitable enterprise to start a war and everyone in the west is going to pay for it consumers you know people like me are going to pay for this war uh, by having to pay higher
0: heating bills. Let me get your reaction to Larry Summers, former U.S. Treasury Secretary, also a major architect of uh, Russia's uh, financial collapse in the 1990s with the shock therapy he helped to impose. He said that recently that higher gas and food prices for average Americans is what he called "quote the price of fighting tyranny."
2: I so, worry slight. I worry mm-hmm. slightly, Farid, when I hear us protest a bit too vigorously that this isn't going to interfere with gasoline prices uh, too much. Because I think, ultimately, if the price of combating tyranny is a period of much higher gas prices, that's a price we need to be prepared to pay as a country. But I think we'll get there if we need to. Inflation's a serious problem this will make it worse. But preserving world order is much more fundamental and much more important than an extra percentage point or an extra three percentage point on the CPI uh, over some interval. So let's have our priorities straight. Historians 50 years from now might remember the events of this week in Ukraine they will not remember the inflation statistics over the next uh, six months.
1: Yeah, it is, Um, and it will be. I mean, and here in Europe, we're already paying. And I I think in America, the cost of gas has gone up to, what, over three bucks now or something, isn't it? So you're paying at the pumps. Um, I think Putin's calculation, though, is if he's going to go down that road of using the commodities as a weapon explicitly, then he wants to make those Price hikes uh, unbearable. So it's one thing to pay for expensive gas, but you know you just take your bike or you walk or you don't go. But it's another thing to make bread prices triple, so that there's a shortage of basic inputs, so that your company cannot work or you have to limit production, which means you have to lay people off. Um, I think that that's the, the only possible scenario I, I can see where you know Putin would, would actually gain anything. So what the government and and Biden was saying the same thing is like you're actually going to have to put your hand in your pocket in this case for Ukraine's freedom and pay three bucks for gas instead of whatever it was before, one and a half. Um, But Putin, he could, remains to be seen, uh, but he could ramp prices up significantly to a point where politically in America, in Europe, in Germany, in Britain, Um, it starts to become a real problem. Because people will ask at the end of the day, why are we doing this? I mean, like, what's Ukraine to us? We weren't gonna let it into NATO. It's not going to join the EU. So what's, you know, it's between Russia and Ukraine, let them sort it out, let it go. And and that pressure, we're hearing some of that pressure already. I mean, people are like, why, why am I suffering over this?
0: That's what makes this so frustrating. Russia's decision was, I think, criminal and disastrous. But its demands before that decision to invade were very reasonable. Just neutrality for for Ukraine, yeah. which has long been the solution that everyone knows is, is the only way for a country that, by the way, is so deeply divided. It's not as if everybody in Ukraine wants to join NATO. It's a divided country. Um, true, true. Yeah.
1: You you touch on a on a subtle point here. Um because, you know, I alluded to the Cuban Missile Crisis, but that was driven by um, ideological conflict between East and West, communism, capitalism, Soviet Union and, and the Free West. And in those days, it was great power politics. You know, who had the biggest stick got to call the shots. And so Kennedy waved his stick at the Soviet Union over the missiles, and, and the Soviet Union backed down. However, things have changed because Putin's saying it's the same today. And like, we're a big power and we're getting missiles in our neighbors, so we're waving our stick and they can't do that. But it's changed because we've had this thing called the Helsinki process, which started in 75. And in that we've been trying to build a new world order based on shared values, rule of law. And one of those core beliefs is that sovereign states, uh, their territory is, uh, their territorial integrity is guaranteed and that they have the freedom to make deals, alliances, trade deals with whoever they want, and that the big guys can't call the shots anymore. So you had the ridiculous situation where we weren't offering Ukraine uh, NATO membership. And yet when Russia told us, we want you to promise that they can never have that, on principle, because of this desire to build this new world water, that strikes to the very heart of what we've been trying to build a civilized world based on rules and values. And so in that sense, it makes every sense to say no and cause this crisis. However, at the end of the day, I don't know, I'm a pragmatist and that new world order is not working. And uh, America is also guilty of ignoring it like in Venezuela, whenever it feels like it. And because of the suffering involved, um, as a pragmatist, I would say like, let's just concede, let's just, promised that it's not going to join because it's not going to join um but i I actually understand if you want to make a principal fight certainly the ukrainians have been put in a position where they could make these concessions and they don't seem that they're going to they're willing to fight and die for what they believe in you know which is incredibly noble um tragic but you know i totally understand that And, and in that sense i am they have my fullest support um I guess if it was my country, I might do the same. I don't know. we we'll have to see.
0: Let me ask you finally about China. Do you think it's fair to assume that Russia got China's blessing to launch this invasion? And to what extent can China help Russia bear the brunt of the economic assault that it's now facing?
1: Uh, it can help a lot. Um, I, I'm certain China was told and China's not stupid. It knows Russia well and could see this coming. And in general, China's on board with Russia in the sense that it objects to this global uh, hegemony led by the US, this unipolar world, and agrees with Russia that it should be a multipolar world whereby all countries at the table have an equal say and and it's done by committee. And they they mention the UN as as an appropriate format for that. However, um, China at the end of the day, and I'm not a China specialist at all, but from the Russian perspective, um, China has always been extremely pragmatic, thinking about its own interests first and foremost. And so it's backed Russia with, there was a U- UN General Assembly meeting where were, the motion was to condemn Russia's invasion. And China abstained. And so it's not going to vote for in Russia's favor. Um, but it's not going to condemn it either. And so there's, and that sort of highlights and illustrates the fence sitting that's going on there. Um, and so it will help Russia in the sense that because it's effectively being cut off from the global financial network, uh, Russia still holds one in its reserves, significant amounts. And that's a hard currency. And so, going forward, it'll help in the sense that uh, Russia will be able to do business, sell, you know, commodities, goods, fuel to China, get paid in one, but use Chinese banks to do swaps, conversions to get access to dollars such as it needs it. And China will probably facilitate all of that. Um, but in terms of actual active supports, I don't think it'll do that. In, in a way, this is by far the biggest winner of this conflict is China, because... Now the, the, the BP, British Petroleum, big British oil company owned 19% of Rosneft, Russia's biggest oil company. BP says now it's exiting, it's finishing business, it's going to leave, it's going to sell that 19%. Who can it sell it to? I mean, which investors? No one will buy it. The Chinese step in, will buy it for 10 cents on the dollar. So they're going to walk away with a lot of goodies very cheaply and deal with all the problems they have because China has no energy and it has no inputs. It has no metal, it has no minerals, all the things that Russia has, China doesn't. And so now all of that's available at discounted prices. And even the gas they're sending to China um, because if Russia can't send it west anymore and it won't be able to send it west in five, 10 years time, then the Chinese are like, well, we're the only buyer. That's not a market. You know, this is what we're offering you, take it or leave it. And Russia will be so impoverished, they will have to take any price it's offered. So Chinese are going to come out of this smelling of roses, I think, before they have their own clash with the
0: states, which is supposed to be on the cards as well. Ben Arris, founder and editor of BNE and that is at Bne.eu. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Uh, if I can do a quick plug for the publication, we're following the crisis very closely, and we have, um, if you go to bne.eu slash welcome, one of the things we offer is Editor's Picks, which is a free email digest, and at the moment that's totally dedicated to covering this conflict. comes once a day with our best stories from the last 24 hours. I recommend people read it.
0: And I'll plug one thing too, if you want to hear even more from Ben, he's done some great interviews uh, with mark ames and gary becker of radio warner which you can go listen to uh at their show which i highly recommend ben thanks very much my
1: pleasure